Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Our understanding and acceptance of autism has evolved over the years towards a greater awareness of what we call neurodiversity. Broadly, the idea that each brain is unique and what used to be considered disorders are not at all, but rather reflections of these uniquenesses with their own strengths and weaknesses. At the same time, we've also learned how valuable early intervention is for longer-term outcomes. But how can this be? If we aren't fixing anything, why the need for this intervention? Joining me is Dr. Lauren Franz, the Associate Director of Duke University's Center for Autism and Brain Development, for what I hope you will find to be an enlightening and important conversation. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Lauren Franz. She is an Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Global Health and the Associate Director of the Duke Center for Autism and Brain Development, an interdisciplinary research and clinical center serving autistic individuals and their families. She is a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist, and her research focuses on improving access to evidence-based services and supports for neurodevelopmental conditions, including autism in diverse communities locally and globally. Dr. Franz leads Duke's NIH-funded Autism Center of Excellence, P50 Dissemination and Outreach Corps, which promotes bi-directional communication between investigators and a range of key stakeholders, and develops the research pipeline for future autism researchers. She is also the UNICEF Technical Lead for a UNICEF slash WHO project, developing a comprehensive approach to provide care and support for young autistic children and their families. She is the recipient of numerous awards and the author of many publications on neurodevelopmental conditions. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Franz. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about um, our recent publication. Yeah, well, it is a very interesting publication. And I admit when I read it, I was so happy to see it discussed. And before we get into this, because for those of you that don't know, the topic we're going to talk about today is really how we consider early intervention for autism from a neurodiversity perspective. So before we get into that more generally, how did you become interested in autism and neurodevelopmental conditions more generally? Um, so I've always been fascinated by this tremendous developmental potential of young children and also the impact that those closest to them, meaning their primary caregivers can actually have on their growth and development. So throughout my clinical and research training, I sort of proactively sought out opportunities to become involved in research and clinical work that focused on this early childhood period. And this led to an opportunity for me to train up to the level of a trainer in the early start Denver model, which is one of the naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention approaches, where we actually coach caregivers on strategies that they can use to support their child's learning and sort of the social and communication domains. And, you know, in this role of caregiver coach, I've worked with many families where I've seen that caregivers can learn strategies that support their child's developmental growth. At the same time, it's actually very interested in the context that impacts people's lives. And in autism, particularly, context really does matter um, because individual outcomes can really vary, you know, depending on whether an individual is identified as autistic, when they're identified as autistic, you know, what access they have to timely supports and services across their lifetime but also the degree of societal adaptation, you know, which relates to things like acceptance, inclusion and accommodations in school and the workplace. So, you know, this combination of factors, you know, really led to my interest in autism and the, and, um, the work that I currently do. That's fascinating. And I, I love that idea of a naturalistic setting to work with families within it to kind of support the caregivers instead of necessarily intervening with the children there as, as a means of support for families. Um, so as we mentioned, we are talking about early intervention, which is kind of what you just spoke about, and neurodiversity today, based on a recent article you co-authored in um, the Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics on this topic. Now, there's a larger discussion on the future of intervention in autism disorders, but before we get into this, can we start with a bit of a background for people who may not be aware 
of what early intervention research has included in the past and what the bulk of the research has said about such interventions in terms of their efficacy and their outcomes for individuals who are diagnosed as autistic. Sure. So, you know, I would say that we have a growing evidence base that supports the importance of early intervention to promote things like language and communication and adaptive behaviors, as well as social relationships. Um, there's also research that suggests that early intervention can improve long-term independence and decrease costs in things like education and social supports. Uh, there are also expert consensus guidelines, numerous expert consensus guidelines that suggest that the earlier intervention is actually initiated, better outcomes will be. And, you know, from a developmental neuroscience perspective, intervention early in life when the brain, you know, typically expects to develop things like language and social skills is thought to result in quicker and stronger improvement than if those skills were taught at a later stage of development. Um, in an overview of reviews that we recently published in Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology, we reported that naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention, as well as developmental and behavioral intervention, which is ABA, improved a range of outcomes for autistic children. However, the greatest intervention impacts were actually seen on what we call proximal intervention-specific outcomes. So things that were assessed directly after the intervention was delivered. And there were also very significant limitations in the quality of our evidence base. So, you know, while I would say we certainly do have a growing evidence base that supports the impact of early intervention, particularly naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention and developmental interventions, at present there are limitations in this evidence base. You know, we don't have head-to-head -head comparison studies of different intervention approaches. There are actually very few community-based studies where interventions are not tested in a lab-based, you know, uh, a university setting, but actually tested in real-world settings like infant-toddler programs. There are very few studies that actually assess the impact of the amount of intervention. So we don't know how much or how long is optimal. And, you know, studies typically have not reported adverse events. Uh, so we don't know if more intervention is necessarily better or which intervention approach may actually be the best fit for an individual and their families. And very importantly, and I know we're going to get into this more, very few studies to date have actually included diverse stakeholders, including autistic adults with lived experience in the research process itself to develop and test interventions. And stakeholder involvement is critically important, you know, to ensure that the interventions that are being developed and disseminated are acceptable. So we do have an evidence base, but there are significant limitations. I think I want to follow up on a little bit of this. So the first thing I want to ask, it's really interesting because you talked about the earlier the intervention, the better, and the sooner it is, um, done relative to when the brain expects that type of development to take place, the better it is. So does that mean that we probably have different early standards for early, depending on the area we're looking at? So I think about early intervention for language might be different than early intervention for certain social elements, so to speak. Or is there just kind of a time frame of the earlier, the better for everything? So I think the, the general consensus is the earlier, the better across multiple areas of development, including language and social skills, for example. And, you know, there are different cutoffs to what is considered early. If we think of infant toddler programs, they typically serve children and families in the age of zero to three. Uh, but, you know, some folks may consider early younger than five and some folks may consider early younger than eight. But I think typically under three is what we're talking about when we're thinking about early intervention. Which makes it a little harder because I know sometimes we don't even get diagnoses until much later. So that has to play into how difficult that is to get where I think we want to go for everyone. And I guess also why then, as you said, so few community interventions, that's where you might be able to actually provide support in these programs for anyone that might be at risk without a formal diagnosis. 
Correct. So I think the age of diagnoses in the United States is around four, four plus years, right? So, you know, we have a long way to go. If we're saying that early intervention is the way to go, making sure that we're able to identify and provide the appropriate services at the appropriate age. And one of the things I want to ask about this, and you kind of brought up something we will talk about, the perception of treatment from those who have experienced treatment, as you said, the stakeholders themselves, adults who have um, who have autism and have gone through these various things. But one of the first ones I want to ask is that it does seem we do have some research on some longer term outcomes now. So I know, as you mentioned, most of the, the positive results are proximal right after the actual intervention has taken place. But Things like um, losing a diagnosis. I know you mentioned in your paper, one of them was that losing a diagnosis was associated with later mental health struggles. Can you tell us a bit about the research that's been done on the mental health aspect of early intervention later on? Sure. So, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, um, in terms of longer term outcomes, there is research that does suggest that the loss of an autism diagnosis, if it occurs later in life, you know, can result in mental health struggles, things like anxiety and depression. You know, also there's a recent longitudinal study that actually found that adults who lost their autism diagnosis, but also those who kept or gained their autism diagnosis had what we would consider good outcomes, you know, things such as having friends and having a job and living independently. And there are also studies that suggest that autistic individuals who feel a greater need to camouflage their their behaviors or modify their behaviors to meet societal norms may have more mental health difficulties such as depression and anxiety. And I mean, I think that comes as no surprise. I feel like we could talk about that with anyone who feels they have to hide part of who they are. They're going to struggle mentally to be in a society that basically implicitly tells you you can't be who you are. So that leads me to the question of, you know, the perception of treatments from those who have been in have been through them. What do we know about that? What have we heard from those who are maybe now adults? who have gone through, typically I'd say it used to be ABA was the big one that I know of, um, but obviously you mentioned other ones. How do we understand their perceptions of these treatments thus far? So, you know, as I said earlier, very few intervention studies have actually included a diverse group of stakeholders, including autistic adults in the development uh, and assessment of interventions. And what we are hearing now from neurodiversity um, advocates is that, you know, not all these experiences have been positive, right? And so, uh, you know, I think what, what we need to, what we need to do, and I'm a researcher, so this is sort of how I think about it, is just ensure that we have continued dialogue and collaboration among different stakeholders, you know, including those with lived experience. And that's just essential to sort of move our field forward. And in terms of, you know, intervention development, as I said, from, from, from the get-go, we need to identify who the stakeholders are and include them in the design process, not just of interventions, but of diagnostic tools and outcome measures, you know, whatever is being developed, just to make sure that what is being developed is broadly acceptable to the autism community. And this is a really important way that we can sort of decrease the research to practice gap as one as one example, you know, but also just really make sure that the end product that's being developed is acceptable. And although, you know, this work has started and these conversations have started, uh, the field still has a long way to go. I love that. The idea of, you know, stakeholders having a stake. I mean, it is, it should be self-explanatory in the actual labeling we give them. And yet, I think there's a lot of research where that doesn't happen, not just in the autistic world, but I mean, in a lot of different areas. So I think it's wonderful that it's starting. Um, it's unfortunate that it hasn't happened up to date, um, so to speak, and that we have heard stories that are less than positive um, regarding the experiences of some of these interventions. So you use the word neurodiversity. I've used it as we talked about this perspective. And I do want to just make sure that we're all on the same page. So 
the neurodiversity movement has shifted how we think about neurodevelopmental conditions, whether we want to call them conditions, whether it's just differences. Um, and again, so that everyone is on the same page, can you just tell us about the neurodiversity movement, what it means, how it began, and so on? Uh, so firstly, I'll say that if folks are interested in reading a comprehensive overview of neurodiversity, there is an open access book called Autistic Community and the Neurodiversity Movement that was edited by Stephen Cap. This is a comprehensive review that's written by leaders in the field. So I would definitely direct listeners to that text if they're interested. But you know, briefly what I can share is that the neurodiversity movement um, is a movement that proposes that everyone has a unique brain and unique abilities. And that many of the challenges that are faced by autistic people are actually due to some kind of mismatch between these autistic characteristics and what society expects from them, which relates to, you know, societal biases. And, you know, the neurodiversity movement aims to ensure that um, clinical practice, policy, you know, research, um, you know, autistic, you know, includes autistic individuals in decision making, you know, because these are topics that impact them. And this is illustrated by, um, you know, a slogan from the neurodiversity movement, nothing about us without us. So the neurodiversity movement, you know, also aims to reduce stigma, increase accessibility and inclusion, and not just improve quality of life, but also support well-being, you know, support the development of meaningful social relationships, and very importantly, this idea of self-determination and decision-making autonomy. I love that. And I will mention now that in the show notes is a link to that open textbook. So I'll make sure that's there. So, and I, and I would recommend, I'm going to have to check it out because I had not <laughs> known that was there. And yeah, it's, it's a fantastic comprehensive resource. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Cause I think that is something it's so hard. There's so much discussion about it at times in our society. And I don't think it's a complete discussion, right? I mean, I've had it and it actually leads me, you know, how do we deal? Like, cause let me step back. What you just said makes complete sense. People, no decision about us without us is the way it should be for every group of people when it's feasible. Because um, I say, you know, we should consider children when we make decisions about child well-being. We should consider <laughs> everyone who is a stakeholder in that. And yet, I know when it comes to the neurodiversity movement, I still hear people saying, and a lot of people saying that the onus of change should be on the individual who's different as opposed to the society, that it's somehow, I guess, easier to put it on the few as opposed to the many. And so how do, I mean, how do you respond to that when you hear that? Because you work within this realm, you advocate for it. Um, what are the, the answers we can give to those kind of comments that come up a lot with respect to the neurodiversity movement? So, you know, I think this is particularly true when considering certain autistic traits, like self-stimulatory behaviors, for example, which we are now understanding can serve a self-regulatory function or a communicative function even, right? But they could be highly stigmatizing, right, in a society that isn't accepting of neurodiversity and is not accepting of difference. Uh, the Lancet Commission actually, you know, recently published a report on the future of clinical care and clinical research in autism. And what they suggest there, and this is sort of how I think about it as well, is that outcomes can really vary depending not just on societal adaptations and so not just on things like acceptance and inclusion and accommodations, but also access to timely supports and services across the lifetime, right? So, you know, from my perspective, there's actually this transactional relationship between society and what the individual brings, right, in terms of individual strengths and individual weaknesses. That's the same for all of us, really, because we all have strengths and we all have areas where we could improve, right? And, you know, where uh, society, where sort of individual and society factors, you know, can interact um, and actually impact outcomes and quality of life. And, you know, I think this is particularly true for individuals who might be multiple, multiply marginalized by society. So groups 
that are significantly impacted by healthcare disparities, for example, where these sort of structural barriers can significantly impact access to timely services and supports. So, you know, I'm sort of of the of the mindset that society needs to adapt, right? But we also need to provide access, you know, to services that can help, right? And and services that are acceptable and appropriate for the individual and their family. It seems as I listen to you speak, it feels like there's a point at which we need to remove the need for a diagnosis to access services, that so much of what we do is predicated upon labeling people to go into things to say, okay, you're eligible for this support. You don't have that label. You're not actually eligible for this anymore. Is it fair to say that if we probably, I, I, maybe we don't do away altogether. I understand there may be other elements to it in terms of labeling, but in terms of access to support, it should almost be open to everyone as they need it throughout the lifespan. You have a weakness in social skills. That's okay. You don't have to be autistic. You can just have a weakness and need some support for that. Fred, you know, and I think who knows what, what access is going to look like in the future, but I think within the autism field, it's, we, we are very aware of the bottlenecks, right? That, that, that we place, um, around access to, to services and supports. And, you know, that could be different in different places. And often it's sort of, um, it could be, you know, mandated to, to access services by insurance companies, right? By education systems, right? In order to be, to be, um, eligible for this service, you need to have this test, which says X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and in a way, it, 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 I completely agree. It really acts as as barriers, right? It's it's kind of shocking that we still require that. Well, I mean, are there examples of other cultures or other places where perhaps we see more acceptance of neurodiversity? Um, more than we have, and I say North America here because I'm in Canada. I know you're a Duke in the U.S., but we still have similar issues across both countries here, um, or even just more access to supports that kind of don't show those bottlenecking effects. And and how does that look for those in the autistic community? Um, so I'm not completely sure, you know, of of how to answer that question. I think um, I'll start by you know maybe. Uh, thinking about societies um, that have uh, different s systems of care. And I know you say we're both in North America, but I think Canada and the United States have remarkably different. We just still have the bottlenecks, though. That's what I'm yeah. going for. Yeah, remarkably different sort of systems of care. Uh, so, you know, I don't think anyone has this figured out, to be honest with you, from conversations I've had with uh, other researchers and clinicians that live in different part of the world, parts of the world. But I do think access to universal healthcare, you know, is a way to uh, decrease some of these service access barriers. Again, I don't think it's a panacea because there is always sort of these limitations on uh, professionals who are trained, right, to be able to provide these services. And I think all systems in a way uh, maybe create some sort of bottleneck to match demand to to um, what is actually available, um, but but I do think uh, you know having a universal healthcare right um, isn't a panacea, but it's certainly um, uh, optimal or more op more you know a better a better um, way of providing equitable access than what we have in the United States. Absolutely. And one of the things I just have to ask as we go in, because I know I've seen this come up when talking about the neurodiversity movement, is that I've heard the argument that if a diagnosis changes, right, like we brought it up in the research, people who lose their diagnosis of, of autism or gain it, but in particular, when they lose it, can we say that person was ever actually autistic? Is it possible, like from a neurodiversity perspective, is autism something you gain and lose or is it part of who you are and maybe symptoms or behaviors change through time? 
Um, and then I guess the larger question with that is if it is just things that change through time, would we ever want to look at diagnosis changing as an outcome variable of interest? Uh, so I'm not sure if I'll be answering this from the neurodiversity perspective, That's but fine, I, yeah. I, I can, I think I can answer it from uh, what, what, what the literature is telling us currently. So, you know, um, what we do know uh, is that diagnoses of autism can actually shift over time. Yeah, there's a recent longitudinal study uh, by Rebecca Olias and Kathy Lord uh, that actually looked at diagnostic stability of individuals over time with you know, in-person assessments that were completed at multiple time points, you know, from two to the age of 25 years by assessors who were actually blinded to previous diagnoses. So they didn't know what the, the individual had previously been diagnosed with. And what they found was that there were gradual changes in what we would consider core autistic features that actually began in childhood and that diagnoses actually shifted, you know, across development. And while, you know, most children who were diagnosed with autism early in life actually continued to meet criteria as an adult, just under 20% of their sample who were in the higher IQ range actually lost their autism diagnosis when they were assessed at the age of 25. But I don't necessarily think this study would answer the specific question um, that might relate to camouflaging of symptoms. Um, it wasn't sort of designed to do that. Um, but what the authors did note is that none of the individuals who lost their autism diagnosis at, at the at the 20th at the at their assessment when they were 25 years of age currently identified as autistic. So I don't think that completely answers your question, but what is interesting is that we do think that the, the, the autistic characteristics can actually shift, you know, across development. And I think that makes sense. So many of our behaviors shift across development. I mean, you know, I know I've seen similar things with ADHD, where you look at, you take an average two-year-old and they're pretty much all going to qualify for ADHD because that's where they're at. And then as things shift, you get to 12, 13, 14, and it's almost like a different group that still qualifies, right? So it's it makes sense to me that over development, we're going to see behaviors shift. And if our diagnosis is dependent upon certain behaviors, that's going to affect how we, how we see the individual, mm -hmm. but I do, I don't even know what to make of it, but I find it fascinating that the majority of those who lost their diagnosis didn't self um, identify as mm -hmm. autistic. That feels like there's something, something there that is crucially important. And I don't even know what it is, but it's really <laughs> interesting. Um, mm -hmm. so and, and if I could just say, and I think these questions are coming up now. So the questions that you, that you're asking about, you know, but, um, you know, things like camouflaging and you know, things like that. So I do think that that's sort of becoming a, a bigger area of research interest, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, maybe maybe we'll have more answers, right, in the near future. Yes, which I hope, well, that's the whole hope here is that we have these discussions and more people get interested in, and then funding, of course, follows for more of this research to go forward. Um, so hopefully it's clear that we have these two ideas. We have the early intervention and neurodiversity, and they can be at odds with each other, depending on how we view, you know, especially the way research has gone historically without the stakeholders being involved and everything, we can see how there could be some, some odds. And this kind of goes to if autism is not inherently a disease, a condition, or something that requires fixing, we have to look at that role of intervention. And this is the crux of that article you wrote, which was incredible, which is how do you define the goals of early intervention when fixing or losing a diagnosis is not the goal? And so with that question, I, I have to ask you, how do you define the goals of early intervention when the historical goals of fixing something or losing an autism diagnosis are kind of thrown out the window and not part of the discussion? Uh, so as we outlined in our article, we do believe uh, that therapeutic intervention, you know, can and should be neurodiversity affirming. And, you know, we think that the loss of an autism diagnosis should not be the priority of early intervention. 
and that interventions really should promote flourishing, right, rather than imposing normality. So it's also you know, important for, to, for me to reiterate that the goal of losing an autism diagnosis is actually distinct from intervention goals that promote language, that promote functional communication, that promote things like adaptive behavior and social relationships. And it's also distinct from interventions that work to decrease aggression, work to decrease things like self-injury, and, you know, even things like anxiety. So, you know, we can, that and those types of things can significantly impact an individual's quality of life and you know, results in them being placed in more restrictive educational and living environments. You know, so our goals, importantly, can also include helping the parent or caregiver actually change their behavior to better support the needs of their autistic child and actually to help them understand how they can structure activities in a way that better supports their child and help them understand how their child is communicating. During uh, naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention, you know, learning and change actually occurs in both partners who participate in the interaction rather than just the autistic child. Um, and, you know, this is necessary, change on both parts, right, to, to promote um, what we would call reciprocal social exchanges. The, the caregiver, you know, needs to understand how to join their child in activities, and importantly, in activities that their child prefers. So it's on the child's, um, it's on the child, it's based on the child's interest, right? They may need to learn to understand specific cues that the child is sort of uh, showing, um, you know, and often these cues can look different, right, from other children that they may have or who may be neurotypical. Um, you know, caregivers may need to learn how to change the structure of the activity, as I've said, but importantly, changing the structure to ensure that they don't overstimulate their child, right, because autistic kids can have, you know, numerous sensory sensitivities, right? Um, and social interactions with autistic children can actually look different from interactions with neurotypical children and successful community. So there's a lot of work that needs and can be done with a parent or caregiver, right, to sensitize them to their child's communication style or help them understand how they can better interact and support their child. Um, so, you know, long-term optimal intervention outcomes should really enhance quality of life, right? Which for most people means living as independently as you can, you know, making your own choices, having, you know, satisfying relationships, however you may define that, and also being able to communicate what you want and what you need and having interests, right, and having some kind of meaning from life. And all these sort of long-term goals are actually completely consistent with keeping an autism diagnosis and not losing it. I love this because this is exactly the kind of intervention that I would think would make sense, the ones you're discussing, language, et cetera. But it also reminds me, it feels odd to me that we've resisted this type of intervention because we seem to do it for other parents as well. Having worked in the realm of parent education and everything, we do teach parents how to read their baby's signals, how to read their children and socially engage with them. And so the idea that we wouldn't say, oh, except for some of these kids, that's not going to work. So we better look at it differently. Seems so strange to me that we're just getting there, right? That this hasn't been because we've been doing it for the majority for a very long time, we offer this. Um, and that even when we see other areas, like if you have a child that is deaf, most families learn sign language or other forms of communication. They don't say to the kid, well, good luck. You're going to have to figure out how to communicate with us and we're doing nothing. And so it seems like what's historically happened with the autism community is kind of at odds with how we've treated so many other areas of particularly with children. Um, so I, I don't know why that is. And I don't even know if you have an answer as to why that is that it's been so different. I'm not sure there is an answer that we know right now. But it does seem odd to me as I think about what you're describing as 
just contrary to what we've been doing with families for years. So I think my reflection on that um, relates to uh, sort of intervention approaches that are becoming more prominent. So I've already spoken a bit about naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions, but they're also developmental interventions. And if we look at the evidence base, there's actually more evidence for those types of interventions, the two that I've just mentioned, than behavioral interventions like ABA, especially in the sort of younger age group. Uh, and so, you know, uh, there was a recent systematic review that was led by Michael Sandbank with colleagues of hers, uh, where they actually sort of quantified the amount of randomized controlled trials that had been done with these different intervention approaches and both naturalistic developmental behavioral intervention and developmental interventions, which align with sort of a family-centered early intervention approach, which I think relates to what you were saying. You know, they, they, they just have more evidence behind them. It's, that's the first I've heard of that. And yet it makes perfect sense to me that they would have the support behind it because it just flows with what we know. Now, I guess this leads to the question I have. I have heard sometimes, and I hope this is a minority view, but I know I've heard it myself from, from people um, that any treatment intervention is not appropriate, that there are some extreme views that neurodiversity means we don't need early intervention. We don't need treatment you have to accept as we are. And how do you navigate when you come across families who may not want to engage in any treatments, even those that neurotypical children may engage with to help? I mean, I have kids who have been through speech therapy. Both of them have gone through it. I don't blink an eye at saying, yeah, they need a bit of help there. That's great. We can get this and go forward. But I think there's sometimes a stigma to treatment for certain groups, including those who have children on the who are autistic. Um, but how do you navigate getting them to see that some of these treatments may be helpful without further stigmatizing their child? So I do think that's a great question. Um, and, you know, I think it's always the prerogative of the autistic individual, if they can express their preferences as well as their family, to make decisions about services and supports that are in their best interest. So I certainly don't see it as the role of any provider to, this might be a strong word, coerce, you know, autistic individuals and their families into any kind of treatment, because I don't think this is productive or, you know, ethical. Um, you know, we always need to meet people where they are. And I think part of why our uh, reasoning for writing the article was to begin these conversations, right? Um, you know, but as I've said earlier, while our article is certainly not meant to cast doubt on the value of early intervention, because there is value <laughs> in early intervention, you know, we really do believe that therapeutic interventions can and should be neurodiversity affirming, and they really should promote flourishing, you know, and as I said, not just work on imposing normality and getting rid of an autism diagnosis. Um, you know, and that different perspectives on neurodiversity and early intervention really can be reconciled, you know, because both neurodiversity movement and folks that work in early intervention, they actually share common goals and values, which relate to improving quality of life, right, for autistic individuals. So I see the role of the provider as one that assists the autistic individual and their family in identifying their priorities for care, you know, while ensuring respect for their perspectives. And importantly, interventions, you know, can support a positive sense of self-identity and promote, you know, positive self-advocacy skills. So, you know, I think that the conversation that uh, we have added to, I wouldn't say we started it, we certainly did not start the conversation, but the conversation we've added to on how do we bring these two um, uh, sort of camps together, right, it, um, uh, I'm hoping and we hope uh, will we'll, um, help folks recognize the commonalities instead of the differences. And I think the way you present it is so good because as you've highlighted here as well, when you focus on just the skills to flourish, it's not, it almost has nothing to do with the autism. It has to do with, okay, language. Yep. 
as I said, lots of kids go through speech therapy for a variety of reasons. Um, even social skills. Some kids need more assistance in social regulation. And again, not just those who are autistic. There are a lot of children that need certain supports in that realm. So I do agree with you that when you get, when you break it down into the the areas that help you flourish as opposed to, okay, we're trying to fix a problem, it really does change the way the discussion happens. And I think how anyone can view that kind of early intervention, so to speak. Now, I did have to ask one thing with this is how can you navigate this with those who speak up are those who may have been treated, we've talked about this before, are those who were treated as children and have a negative view and effect of this. Is there a way to reconcile that experience with this kind of shift in promotion? And, and I think you kind of hinted at it already in that the evidence-based treatments are often not those where we see this negative long-term outcome. Um, but how do you how do you reconcile those together? Uh, so, as I said, you know earlier, continued dialogue. You know, recognizing who stakeholders are, including them from the beginning, uh, uh, helping and ensuring that uh, autistic perspectives are incorporated in the development and the refinement of of treatment approaches. Uh, you know, leaning into there's nothing about us without us, right? <laughs> um, that's 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 how myself and others, you know, think that we we can we can move the field forward. And how difficult is that change going to be? I mean, it's lovely to hear it. I think I agree with you, and I know it. But I've been involved in research, and I kind of think about how. What are the practical barriers to really getting all those stakeholders involved, having voices be heard and included in the research process? Um, you know, so there are uh, mechanisms and research designs that would support this, right? So including things like a community academic partnership, including a community advisory boards. Uh, so, and those types of uh, uh bi-directional communication mechanisms are becoming much more common and actually actually expected right um at least from from a, from a research development perspective and another area is you know prioritizing recruitment of autistic clinicians and autistic researchers into the field <laughs> so you know i just think it has to do with priority setting um and recognizing uh, that if we really want to disseminate best practices, uh, stakeholder involvement throughout the research cycle is 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 essential. You know, otherwise you're going to develop a treatment uh, which isn't acceptable and has very limited community penetration. And I just don't see the point of that. <laughs> Maybe I'm biased, but I just don't see the point of that. <laughs> You've convinced me. I, I totally agree with you. That feels like wasted money all around. Um, what do you think about the idea? Like I, I just was sitting here listening to you speak about this going, I wonder if we need a different ethics board for any study that has to do with autism, where your board is actually comprised of those stakeholders that, along with those that also understand some of the nuances about what needs to go into an ethics review. But, you know, it seems like that would be an area to kind of ensure that there is something overseeing at a broader level. Yeah, so I think representation on all levels, right? So whether mm -hmm. it's in an IRB, Institutional Review Board, you know, whether it's amongst folks that actually review grants, right? Um, you know, I think, again, um, recognizing who the stakeholders are and that they should be represented at all levels, whether it's on the ethics board, whether it's who's who's making the funding decisions, right, who's, who, who are the peer reviewers, who are the researchers, you know, who are the consumers. Um, the more representation you have, I think the less we're going to end up in a, in, a, in, a, in a place that isn't productive. And I guess that's the difficult part is getting that representation at all levels, but hopefully it is changing and that's going. Now, mm -hmm. with this, I mean, as we talk about this change, um, 
I, from my understanding, one of the most common interventions is applied behavioral analysis, the ABA. And we've kind of touched on this. You've mentioned the evidence-based is stronger for these other kind of shared involvement um, programs. And from my understanding, and, and I'm free to be corrected here, but ABA does still seem to focus on fixing autism. And I don't want to get into the pros, cons of ABA, but one of the things I do know that happens is that it's still one of the only ones funded at an external level for families who require assistance in terms of the type of supports that they get. How, at a kind of policy level, do we move away from this very rigid allotment of funds for families that are looking for different therapies? So, you know, I think where I'm currently situated is the US. So I apologize if my view is pretty US centric. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, in all 50 states in the US at the moment, uh, there are mandates that actually require coverage of autism services that include ABA um, by Medicaid and to a varying degree by private insurers. And as I've already mentioned, you know, if we look at the evidence base, you know, naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions and developmental interventions actually have more evidence from, 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 from an empirical support perspective when you just look at the number of randomized control trials and, and the, the outcomes, right, that have been reported in, 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 in recent systematic reviews. So, you know, recommendations on type of intervention and certainly types that are covered by insurance and are available should include naturalistic developmental behavioral interventions and developmental intervention approaches. And as I mentioned previously, these actually align with sort of family-centered early intervention services uh, since they occur in a child's natural environment and they occur during you know, everyday interactions with a caregiver. Um, but how do you change policy, right? I think part of it is, uh, is uh, having the right conversations with the right people. <laughs> I think part of it is uh, disseminating uh, most recent uh, uh, evidence, right, from, most re from the most recent systematic reviews. Um, and then advocacy, right? And, you know, there are, there are very strong advocates, <laughs> both from, you know, parent advocates, from self-advocates, um, within the autism community. So I think it's getting the right information to the right people at the right time. So a whole lot of luck going into that one as well. Is what we're <laughs> well, well, I think planning, right, you can be very planful. You know, I think that, you know, you can, you can work, depending on which structure you're in, you can work with, you know, people that, that are involved in government and policy, you know. So I think, I think it's understanding, um, the the if the work environment you're in or the advocacy environment that you could potentially partner with um to change yeah no i i agree it just always sometimes you wish there was the easy just push a button and then it changes and, <laughs> you know all of a sudden <laughs> but that wouldn't be laugh right that wouldn't be i know i know but i can dream can't i that absolutely. can be part of it absolutely so I, I first, I want to thank you so much for all of this. And in closing, I, I really just want to hear from your perspective as such an expert in this field and someone who clearly has all stakeholders in mind when you are looking at these topics, for families who have neurodivergent children, what would be your recommendation on handling both the intervention, early intervention and acceptance piece for where mm -hmm. they're at? You know, so from my perspective, I don't necessarily think it's sort of an either or. I think it's an and because, as I mentioned earlier, I think that there's this transactional relationship between society and what the individual brings, right, in terms of their strengths and weaknesses, you know, areas that they need to work on. And, you know, that isn't unique to autism. That's every human being. So, you know, depending on the individual and family needs, both intervention and acceptance are likely have a place, you know, at different points in time. Uh, so in addition, you know, when thinking about intervention specifically, because we don't necessarily know which approach is the best fit for, for, for an individual, you know, we, we don't, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have head to comparisons, we don't know about 
a lot about how much, how long, you know, there are lots of things that are still open questions. There are, I would really encourage um, folks to consider a few things when, when, when they are working to get connected with services. If that's what the individual and their family deems necessary at that time. You know, some things I would recommend would be to speak with potential prospective providers um, just to get a better understanding of their approach. You know, how does how does their approach fit with you, with your home, with your family, with your priorities? You know, does the approach actually prioritize what you would consider meaningful skill development? You know, is, is the intensity meaning... Uh, the amount of intervention a week can that be tailored to 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 your child you know to the individual and to family needs or is it too much is it too little you know will you and your child be involved in actually developing the goals the treatment goals i really really think that's very important that that isn't decided on by somebody external that individuals have agency in saying what their priorities are and then something that isn't often spoken about is like, how will progress be measured? You know, how will you know this is working and what it's working for? What sort of benchmarks um, uh, should, should, should we take into consideration? Um, so these are the types of, uh, you know, important questions. I think they're important that folks should, should consider uh, when they're thinking about uh, finding an intervention. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. And again, I'm just so thankful that you've put this piece out. I know, as you said, you didn't start the conversation, but this felt, as I read it, like a really crucial piece of the conversation that needs to be more broadly out there. So I thank you so much for your time, your expertise. Please check out all the links at the bottom. We're going to include that open access book. I also will include the links to the different treatment options if you are interested in looking at some of these naturalistic uh, treatments, if you happen to have need of support. And Dr. Franz, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this conversation has helped clarify why we both need to work towards a more neurodivergent society, while also accepting that sometimes we all need a little help, and that that help should be accessible to all. Now until next time, please stay safe and happy parenting.